0: The vision of the seven trumpets opens in the throne room in heaven, where John sees seven angels standing before the throne of God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And then another angel comes to the altar, which is before the throne, carrying a golden censer in his hand. And Revelation 8 says that it was given to him much incense to offer upon the altar incense which John identifies as the prayers of the saints. And when the angel pours out the prayers of the saints upon the altar, the smoke of the incense rises before God who sits upon his throne, filling his nostrils with the sweet aroma of the prayers of his people. See, during this age, the people of God live in Egypt so to speak. We have the promise of an inheritance in Zion. We have the guarantee of our inheritance in Zion, which is the seal, the Holy Spirit. But we remain for the time being in the kingdom of this world. And our time in Egypt, our sojourn in Egypt is often oppressive. It is like the bondage of slavery. Now we have been fruitful and we have multiplied such that we fill the land, but the people of this world hate us, and they persecute and oppress us at every turn. They stoned Stephen in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 7. They slandered, imprisoned, and put to death the saints in Smyrna, Revelation 2.10. They killed Antipas, the faithful witness of Christ, before Satan's throne in Pergamum, Revelation 2.13. They filled the Colosseum in Rome with the blood of the martyrs. They burned them at the stake in Oxford, England in the 16th century. They tortured them in secret police stations in Romania. They threw them in dark prisons in China. They cut off their heads on the beaches in Libya, and they're crucifying them in Syria. The people of God are groaning under the burden and oppression of this world. And the aroma of their prayers smells like suffering. And God has heard their groaning. And He has remembered His covenant. And God sees His people. And God knows The Lord has seen the affliction of His people. He has heard our cry, and He is going to deliver us through great acts of judgment upon the kingdom of this world in these last days. And He will bring us safely into the everlasting land of promise. It is salvation through judgment. And so John sees the angel who stands before the golden altar take fire from the altar and fill his golden incense with it and hurl it down upon the earth amidst peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And then John hears and he sees the angels begin to sound their trumpets which bring forth plagues of judgment upon the earth. First There is judgment upon the land as hail and fire mixed with blood are thrown down upon the earth, destroying a third of the dry land. And then there is judgment upon the seas as a great burning mountain is thrown into the sea and a third of the sea turns to blood, thus killing a third of the creatures in the sea and destroying a third of the ships on the sea. And then there is judgment upon the waters as a great star falls from heaven burning like a torch. And it pollutes a third of the rivers and a third of the springs of water, such that many die. And fourth, there is judgment upon the heavens, as a third of the heavenly bodies are darkened and the earth is plunged into an unnatural darkness. And at the conclusion of the fourth trumpet plague, John sees a strange sight. There is an eagle flying in mid heaven, and it is crying out with a loud voice Woe, woe, woe! "...to those who dwell upon the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow." And this angel, possibly one of the four living creatures from Revelation 4-7, or maybe it's the other angel from Revelation 14-6, it functions in this vision to separate the first four trumpets from the last three trumpets both in terms of their nature and in terms of their intensity. The first four trumpets from Revelation chapter 8 issued in plagues that affect the four realms of nature. And as I proposed last week, these represent natural catastrophes which have been occurring throughout the tribulation of these last days between the first and second coming of Christ, through which the Lord our God is demonstrating His power and His sovereignty over the natural realm. They are harbingers of final judgment, and they are limited during this age. Only a third of the land, only a third of the sea, only a third of the rivers, and only a third of the earth in darkness. And as harbingers of the judgment that is to come at the return of Christ, they ought, they ought, they don't, but they ought to lead men to repentance. But as we shall see at the end of Revelation chapter 9, in a couple of weeks, by and large, they do not. Men In the wickedness and the depravity of their hearts, they just continue in the face of all evidence, they continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so they see this shaking of the heavens and the earth. They see tsunamis that kill a quarter of a million people in the Indian Ocean. And they see a great earthquake that kills 300,000 and renders homeless a million more in Haiti. And they close their eyes and they stop their ears. From seeing and hearing the message that these catastrophes convey. Which is that there is a God in heaven and He is angry with the sins of men. Like Pharaoh and the Egyptians however, these plagues only further harden their sinful hearts. But then come the fifth and the sixth trumpets. And they are of a spiritual nature. The seventh trumpet is then both spiritual and physical, issuing in the final defeat of the kingdom of this world, 1115, followed by the resurrection and the day of judgment. So with each of these last three trumpets, the intensity and the severity ramps up. In the fifth trumpet, men seek death but cannot find it. In the sixth trumpet, a third of all mankind are slain. And in the seventh trumpet, all of the dead are raised and all of the dead are judged. Over the next two weeks, this week, and then we'll take a a, a two-week break for the events surrounding Easter. We'll come back in the first Sunday in April. And over those two weeks, we'll cover the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments from Revelation chapter 9. And we will watch all hell break loose upon the earth. As God unleashes Satan... And the forces of darkness to wreak havoc upon the unbelieving world. As we do though, let me give you just a couple of reminders before we enter into Revelation chapter 9. Two reminders that we need. Number one, I remind you that the time frame of the seven trumpets is the same as that of the seven seals. Namely, the tribulation of this age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Like the seven seals, the first five seals are characteristic of this age, occurring like birth pangs throughout these centuries. The sixth relates to the coming day of wrath at the end of the age. And the seventh relates to the final judgment. I'm not going to go back through all of the reasons again, but just bear in mind that the visions of Revelation are cyclical and not sequential. Each cycle covers the same time frame, but it does so from a different angle in order to reveal different truths. It's like holding up a diamond and examining it and then rotating it ever so slightly to examine a different facet of the same diamond. That's what we're doing in Revelation. Second reminder, these visions are highly symbolic. Okay, We are wading knee deep in biblical apocalyptic imagery. Therefore, they reveal the truth by means of representative signs and images. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, which means that it utilizes, that's a specific type of genre that was around in the first century AD. And the characteristics of apocalyptic literature is that it utilizes grotesque, violent, exaggerated imagery in order to express truths. It's like seeing a vision of your nightmares. When you go to sleep, having eaten a burrito like 30 minutes before you go to sleep, your nightmares are weird. And they are strange and they are scary. They're like the visions of Revelation. Now, you don't take them literally. Literally. What they have done, what that burrito has done, is to take things that you're worried about, to take things that you're concerned about, to take stressors in your life that are in your subconscious, and to bring them out and to exaggerate them, to make it into the scariest thing that you've ever seen, and you wake up with sweaty palms and your heart's racing. John's doing the same thing here in Revelation. This this vision, these visions are exaggerated, monstrous, grotesque, violent images that we're supposed to look at and say, what do these mean? Bearing this in mind, then, will keep us from watching the television or reading the newspapers and looking for news of of a cavalry amassing on the Euphrates River comprised of 200 million demon horses with lions for heads and snakes for tails, breathing fire and smoke and sulfur out of their mouths. It will keep us from reading about the armored locusts with tails like scorpions and coming to the conclusion that what John really saw was Vietnam-era Cobra helicopters. He just didn't have the language language and the experience to describe what he was looking at. That's the wrong way to approach Revelation. There is only one place that we must turn to interpret the symbols of Revelation, and that is the Old Testament from whence they came. Bearing these points in mind, let's proceed carefully into the fifth and the sixth Trumpet judgments over the next two weeks, they are, we don't have time to do both of them today, but they are linked. And so much of what I'm going to say for the fifth has relevance to the sixth. And let's see what we can learn. Verse one of Revelation chapter nine, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth and he, So, so we're not talking about a star, he, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. I would underline that if I were you. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle." They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are yet to come. I want to make five observations this morning from uh, Revelation 9, 1 through 12, and then I'm going to give you two keys, which I believe unlock the door to understanding this trumpet judgment. Two keys from outside of Revelation, which unlock Revelation chapter 9. So let's, let's just walk through this passage. Let's make five observations. Observation number one, there are two Old Testament passages that form the background to this passage. So if we want to interpret the images, we have to look to these two Old Testament passages. The first is obviously Exodus chapter 10, verses 13 to 15. The locust plague that God unleashed upon Egypt. So this plague that is unleashed in the fifth trumpet corresponds to the eighth Egyptian plague in which the Lord unleashed upon Egypt a dense Swarm of locusts that covered the ground and devoured every tree and plant in sight. So that's the first Old Testament passage that forms the foundation. The second one, which is linked to the first, is Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. In which the prophet Joel sees an army, a swarm, coming over the hills and approaching Jerusalem. On the day of the Lord's vengeance... And he equates this army, he identifies them, he illustrates them with the image of a swarm of locusts. Now several of the images that we find in Revelation 9, 1-12 through 12, are drawn from that passage in Joel. Okay, So here's what we have. The original plague, Exodus chapter 10, the plague of locusts upon Egypt, functions as the type. The literal locust invasion. About a thousand years later, Joel takes, or 800 years later, Joel takes that event and he relates it to an event that's about to transpire in his own day, namely the invasion not of locusts, but of the Babylonians who are going to sweep over the mountains and sweep over the hills and devour the land of Israel as an act of God's judgment upon his disobedient people. Well then, about 600 years later comes the Apostle John. And John takes the Egyptian plague of Exodus 10 and the Babylonian invasion of Joel chapter 2 and he crafts this vision around those two Old Testament images. He takes Joel's vision, which was itself based upon the Egyptian plague, and turns it not into into an actual plague of locusts, nor into an army of Babylonians, but rather now it is an invasion of demons, which devour not plants and not trees and not vegetations, but devours men's minds and souls in these last days. Do you see how it's functioning? Observation number two. Although it's debatable, I don't think there's much debate, but if you read around, you'll see a lot of it. I think we are to understand the, fu- the star that falls from heaven to earth and is given the key to the abyss in verse 1, and the king of the demons, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose Hebrew name is Abaddon and whose Greek name is Apollyon, which means destroyer in verse 11. I think we're to understand them as one and the same creature a fallen angel whom you know as Satan. I have at least three reasons for thinking this. Okay? The star that falls from heaven, 9-1, that's Satan. The prince of the abyss, the angel of the bottomless pit, that's Satan. Why do I think that? Three reasons. Number one, the language of Revelation 9-1, the star that falls from heaven, is identical to Isaiah 14 which has primary reference to the king of Babylon, but is understood by most interpreters throughout the centuries to have symbolic reference to the fall of Satan from heaven. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. And see if you can pick out Revelation 9-1. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Sound familiar? Second, the language of 9-1 is identical to Jesus' statement in Luke 10:18, when he says to the 72 who had just returned, saying, "Even the demons are subject to us in your name." And Jesus says to them immediately, "I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven." Third reason: I think that it's Satan. It's difficult for me to imagine another fallen angel being referred to as king. Of the demonic horde, when Satan is uniformly throughout Scripture identified as the God of this world, Jesus calls him that in John twelve thirty-one, and Paul calls him that in Second Corinthians four four. And in Revelation, he's called the great dragon who was thrown down to the earth, and his angels, namely the angels who belonged to him, were thrown down with him, Revelation twelve nine. So you put the pieces together, and I think it's pretty clear what's going on here. Revelation nine one, the star that falls from heaven, that's Satan. And Revelation nine eleven, Apollyon Abaddon, the king, the prince of the bottomless pit, is Satan. Third observation: Who gives Satan access to the pit? It says that the star that fell from heaven, Satan who fell from heaven, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Who gave it to him? Who has the keys of death and hell? Jesus does. Revelation one eighteen. Thus it is Jesus who unleashes Satan and grants to him the authority to release his demonic hordes upon the earth, which is a bit ironic, isn't it? because it was Satan who once offered to grant Jesus authority over the earth if Jesus would bow down and worship him. It was an authority that was not his to give. It is the crucified, risen, and exalted Christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he alone has the keys of death and hell, of the abyss and the bottomless pit. Jesus is utterly, absolutely sovereign over Satan and over the realm of evil. As Luther was fond of saying, the devil is God's devil. It is Jesus who sets the parameters of their power and their authority. They are allowed to torment men for five months, 9-5. Which is probably five months because it relates to the life cycle of a locust. But no longer. This far you may go and no farther. Sounds like God's instructions to Satan in Job 1, doesn't it? They are not allowed to take men's lives only to devour their joy and their sanity. Fourth observation they are only granted authority over those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Those who are sealed, you can't touch them, he says. That's you. Jesus handed the keys to Satan and before he relinquished them and let them go, he said, Mine, you know, the ones who have the seal on their forehead, you can't have them. You leave them alone. And he was speaking of you. In other words, the unbelievers of this world, and if you don't belong to Christ this morning, that's you. Sa- Satan was given you, Jesus. If you have not come to him in repentance and faith, Jesus gave you over to him. The unbelievers of this world are given over to spiritual torment, but the demons cannot harm the saints of God. Now, I don't think this means that they cannot in any way oppress believers. I don't think the context bears that out. In other words, I take this protection to mean the same thing as when Jesus told his disciples in Luke 21 that the world's going to hate you, they're going to betray you, they're going to persecute you, they're going to throw you into prison, you're going to suffer in manifold ways, and many of you, they're going to put to death, but not a hair of your head's going to perish. It's that kind of protection. It's the promise of spiritual protection which is an important point that we'll come back to at the end of this message. Fifth and final observation from Revelation 9. The devastation wrought by the demons is horrifying. It is horrifying. Look at verse 6. In those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long To die, but death will flee from them. It is a terrible thing. It is an awful judgment to be handed over to demons so that they may devour your mind, your heart, your soul, your hope, your dignity, and your joy. The hideous ferocity of demons is graphically portrayed in the descriptions of verses 7 to 9. What John did was to take a description of a locust and to exaggerate every one of their features to make them murderous and violent. Let me show you what I mean. The locusts become like war horses. Their antennae become like long hair. Their teeth become like lion's fangs. Their exoskeleton... That part that crunches when you step on one? Their exoskeleton becomes like body armor. The sound of their swarm becomes the noise of many chariots rushing into battle. And they feed not upon vegetation, but upon the souls of men. And just as a locust swarm will devour everything green and then move on, so this demonic horde devours every ounce of dignity and joy before leaving their victims in the gutter, defiled, debased, and desolate. Have you ever seen the end result of someone whose physique, whose emotions, whose mind, whose soul has been destroyed by an addiction to meth? you ever seen that? What if that isn't just Meth? What if meth was just the instrument in the hands of demonic locusts who fed upon the soul of that person? That's the image. You could take meth. You could take porn, you could take homosexuality, you could take greed. Anything that devours, anything that a demon can use to to draw you in and devour your soul, its goal is to feed upon your joy, to feed upon your soul, to feed upon your mind, and then to leave you ravaged in the gutter, subhuman, devoid of all dignity. That's, that's their goal, and that's the judgment of God who handed them over. It's a terrible thing to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Don't do it. This is the first woe," says verse 13. "But if this is just the beginning, what will the next two be like? So the fifth trumpet judgment refers to demonic oppression unleashed by God upon the unbelieving world during the tribulation of these last days between the first and second comings of Christ. Now I promised you two scriptural keys to unlock the meaning and the application of this passage. I hope that these two keys will provide not only some verification that we're on the right track In our interpretation, but also some application as to what this means for First Baptist Nixa today. All right, so two scriptural keys to help us understand Revelation chapter 9. The first one, and I want you to turn there with me, is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20. The context of this passage is that Jesus has sent out. And appointed 72 of his followers. He gave them power and authority to be his ambassadors. And then he sent them out two by two to heal the sick. And to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Verse 17 picks up with their return. Luke says the 72 returned with joy. Saying Lord even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them I saw Satan fall like lightning. From heaven. So it's already happened with Jesus' first coming. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let me show you three connections. From Luke 10 to Revelation 9 that that tells us that we're talking about the same events, the same realities, the same truths. Connection number one, Jesus tells the 72, listen for it, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which sounds to me like Revelation 9.1. Does it to you? It ought to because it's identical language. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. It is not coincidence. You combine these two verses with Isaiah 14, 12, and I think the connection is unmistakable. The fallen star of Revelation 9 is Satan. Second connection. The way Jesus describes the authority which he has bestowed on his followers, which refers not just to the 72, but to all his followers, to you. Listen to the way he describes the authority that he has bestowed on his followers over the demonic forces. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Isn't that interesting? Serpents and scorpions. Does that sound familiar? It ought to. The demons in the fifth trumpet are described metaphorically as having the power of scorpions, 9.3. Tormenting unbelievers as a scorpion torments when it stings someone, 9.5. Having tails and stings like scorpions with the power to hurt in their tails, 9.10. And in the sixth trumpet, which we'll see in a few weeks, John will describe the demon horses as having tails like serpents which bite and wound and kill, verse 19. So I think that we're right to interpret the locusts of the fifth trumpet and the horses of the sixth trumpet as demons who are active in this age to the end of the age, just like Jesus said they would be in Luke chapter 10. Finally, third connection. Jesus assures his followers that though they tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, nothing shall harm them. You, does that sound familiar? It sounds to me like you cannot touch those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. The demon locusts are allowed to harm only those who are unsealed. So there's strong connections between these two texts, Revelation 9 and Luke 10. Alright, so what does it mean? How do we apply Because Jesus provides us with some application that might be missing from Revelation chapter 9. And I'm going to suggest two. Viewing Revelation 9 and the fifth trumpet through the lens of Luke chapter 10 gives us these two applications this morning. Number one, Jesus has granted to you his Holy Spirit-sealed followers authority to tread on demons. Now let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That does not mean that you have authority to declare yourself an exorcist and to go around looking for demons to drive out. That is not how Christians in the New Testament and onward deal with the darkness. We don't go around looking for power encounters in order to demonstrate our authority over the demonic realm. Never in the New Testament do you see believers going looking for demons. They don't have to. They go out preaching the gospel and the demons find them. That's what the 72 were doing. They went out to preach and to heal. And by their preaching and healing, the demonic darkness was exposed. And was driven out by the light of the gospel. So, treading on demons means proclaiming the gospel in the authority of Christ under the sovereign protection of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean walking into a room when people are levitating and trying to communicate with the demon in an exorcist sort of way. You try to do that, you'll get hurt. It means on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The seal which is upon our foreheads, the Holy Spirit who dwells within means that we can go into the darkness of this world with the light of the gospel without fear that we will be overcome and suffer defeat. You go into a dark enough place with the light of the gospel and you will see demonic activity what are you going to do when you're in west africa for instance and you're going to proclaim the gospel where no one's ever heard and where satan has had his stronghold for thousands of years and you walk into little huts and people are levitating What are you going to do when little children are speaking with gravelly, low, deep voices? It happens. It's not just in movies. What are you going to do? Well, according to Luke chapter 10, you're not going to fear. And you're just going to keep right on preaching the gospel. This means that we can walk into idol-filled homes in Cuba which are under the bondage and oppression and dark influence of a demonic religion called Santeria, where they worship little idols, but behind those idols stand spirits. And we can walk into them without fear, proclaiming the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, including in this living room. We can tell people that if they will follow Christ, they must forsake their idols and their demons who stand behind them. And if the Spirit opens up their hearts such that they repent and believe the gospel, then we can command whatever darkness resides upon that house that in the name of Jesus Christ and by His blood it must depart. And it will. Revelation 9 understood from this angle is fear-destroying, boldness-inducing motivation to launch an all-out assault upon the dark places of this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second application. And following quickly before we get so jazzed about the authority that Jesus gives us that we have power over the enemy and that begins to produce a bit of pride in us, Jesus gives us a warning, doesn't he? Lest we become self-confident, such that we become prideful exorcists rather than humble evangelists, Jesus turns right around and says, Nevertheless, 1st Baptist Nixa, don't rejoice in this, that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The only reason, in other words, that the demons are subject to us and not the other way around, the only reason why our minds, our hearts, our souls, our dignity, our joy is not devoured by the demonic horde is because God chose us by his grace and wrote our names in his book from before the foundations of the world. Sent his son to shed his blood, to purchase us out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Sent his spirit into our hearts to seal us and protect us from every power of the enemy. That's why we are not overcome. It doesn't have anything to do with you. So don't rejoice in the authority you have. Rejoice in the grace you've been given. This is no grounds for boasting that the demons are subject to us in the name of Christ. Rather, this is grounds for risk-taking, Christ-exalting evangelism. There's a second key, and we'll cover it quickly. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In this passage, Paul writes to the church in Corinth about a great sin within the church that he had recently become aware of, a sin which was not even tolerated among the pagan Greeks with their loose sexual mores. Evidently, according to Paul in verse 1, a man has his father's wife, which probably refers to an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. It's disturbing, it's gross, it's appalling But what most horrified the Apostle Paul was not the sin itself, although he was appalled, but rather the fact that the church had taken absolutely no steps whatsoever to deal with it. They hadn't confronted it, though they were well aware of it. They had not mourned over the man's sin. They had not confronted the man with his sin. They had not disciplined him for his sin. This man was in an ongoing, unrepentant, Immoral relationship and his sin endangered not only his own soul, because the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, Paul says in the very next chapter, but it was a danger to the whole church, because sin is like a cancer and it can metastasize and spread to the whole body. It's like leaven. It leavens the whole lump of dough. And so Paul gives to the church very clear instructions of how to deal with this contagion called sin. Verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from your midst. You get him out. But then Paul says something that has tremendous bearing upon our understanding of Revelation 9. I wonder if you look down at it, if you can find it. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Look closely at the way Paul conceives of church discipline. It is not just removing a name from a role. It is delivering an unrepentant sinner over to the power of Satan in order that his flesh will be destroyed in hope that the destruction of his flesh will provoke him to repentance that his soul may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Evidently, Paul conceived of the church, not the physical brick and mortar building but the gathered, spirit-indwelt blood-bought saints. He conceived of the church as a spiritual fortress from which there is protection from satan and the forces of darkness that operate outside of these walls Do you see it is that not exactly what the fifth trumpet judgment is all about jesus gave to satan to abaddon to apollyon to the destroyer of flesh the key to the abyss and authorized him to unleash his demonic horde upon the earth. And these demons roam the earth, stinging like scorpions and devouring like locusts, leaving men, including this man in Corinth, debased, defiled, diseased, depraved, and despairing. But they cannot touch the man who has the seal of God upon his forehead. They cannot touch those who are within. The church. Evidently then, the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was not a true believer for he did not have the seal of God upon his forehead. Or else the Spirit of God would have brought him to repentance at an earlier stage of church discipline when he was confronted with his sin. Therefore, Paul's hope was that in removing this man from the spiritual attack protection to be found in the gathered church, and in giving him over to be tormented, stung, and devoured by Satan, was that he might recognize his sin, recognize his desperate condition, repent and turn to Christ in faith, and thereby escape the wrath that is to come on the day of the Lord. This is the goal of church discipline. This is why the judgment unleashed in the fifth trumpet is limited. This is why the activity of Satan in this age is restrained. It is limited and it is restrained by the mercy of God to give men like this man in Corinth time to repent. And if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it appears that's what happened. Therefore, let me close by suggesting two further applications from Revelation 9, this time viewed through the lens of 1 Corinthians 5. Number one, this text calls us to recognize and cherish the church. In the gathered, assembled, spirit-filled congregation of blood-bought saints, there is protection from the darkness. The darkness is dangerous, and that's why we're called to abide in the light. Do not stray from the gathered church and from the protection afforded therein this is why we are so fanatical about active church membership here this is why our constitution will not allow a person to simply slip off into inactivity and still remain a covenant member A move towards inactivity, that is, withdrawing from the fellowship of the church, withdrawing from your connect group, withdrawing from corporate worship. Listen, that is never a move towards God. It is never a move towards spiritual health. It is a move towards darkness, and it is dangerous. And if you go too far towards the darkness, you'll be devoured. Don't do it. Stay in the fortress. Secondly, church discipline is about far more than a membership role. It is a tremendously powerful and tremendously sorrowful step which the church must sometimes take. And it is not merely removing a name from a list. It is saying to a person, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith. By your unrepentant sin, you invalidate the claim to be a follower of Christ. We don't think you're sealed. We don't think you're saved from the wrath of God. Rather, we believe that you are under God's wrath and we plead with you to repent and to flee the wrath that is to come. And if they, if they are resistant to that... Church discipline is opening the gates of the fortress and sending such a person out into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where there are ferocious, grotesque, depraved demons with all number of weapons at their disposal to devour the souls of men. Do not regard lightly, therefore the discipline of the church. Do not be stubborn or proud or resistant when a sister comes to you in love or a brother comes to you in love or two of them comes to you in love or an elder comes to you in love and confronts you with a sin and says, I'm worried. I'm worried about your soul. I I want you to repent and I want you to forsake this sin. Don't, 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 rise up and stiffen up your spine against that and say, who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to judge me? Don't do that. You need the protection of the local spirit-indwelt church. It is far better to be disciplined in love within the gates of the fortress than to be devoured outside of the gates. For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant, but rather painful. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So be trained by discipline. Not even the kind that gets to the very end of the process like what we read about. Be trained when a brother comes up to you and says, I don't think you should talk like that. I don't think you should go to movies like that. We're not trying to be holier-than-thou legalists. We're trying to be Christ followers. And I'm not sure you can follow Christ and watch that. Don't be resistant. Be sensitive to conviction because that's what the children do. They heed their father's discipline. That's what those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells do. And you know what? All the demons of hell cannot touch them.